the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word. Hey, Bob, what are you doing? Uh, nothing. Just cleaning up a little. So this series is going to be a little different. This series is for adults who were introduced to the Bible as children, and it's for adults who were introduced to the Bible by adults who were introduced to the Bible as children. Did you follow that? So... It's going to be for most of us, and the reason is this. Uh, most all of us, whether you grew up in church or not, you know some stories about the Bible, but very few of us know the story of how we got the Bible. And that is really, really important, I believe, for everybody to understand. Because if you don't understand how we got the Bible, you will misunderstand what's in the Bible. Maybe this wasn't a big deal as a kid. I think for most of us as kids, it didn't matter if we understood how the Bible came about. But now that we're adults, it makes a big difference. And for some of you, you don't even realize that this has impacted the way you view the Bible and impacted the way you interact with the Bible. But it does. It is a big deal because if you don't know the story of the Bible, it's easy to dismiss the stories in the Bible. And for some of you, this is exactly what's happened. For some of you, you had a season of life or you are right now in a season of life where you have walked away from faith or you are walking away from faith or you are considering walking away from faith. And the reason is because as a kid, you were given a Bible and you were told some things about it and then you became an adult and you began to understand there were some things in the Bible you never knew were in the Bible and you can't get good answers for why those things are in the Bible. You don't understand how those things got to be in the Bible. And so because of that, it is very easy for you to begin to dismiss the stories in the Bible or dismiss some of what you've since discovered and say, nope, that can't really be true or that's not really for me. And you just walk away. For others of you, it's not physically walking away. For others of you, what you've done is simply this. As you've gotten older and you've gotten uh, you know, faith-based answers to your fact based questions about the Bible, and you've gotten some explanations that just aren't sufficient, they just don't add up, they just don't make sense, what you ended up doing is simply this. You kept coming to church, or you kept you know, you know, going through the motions, and you say you're a Christian, you follow Jesus, but the Bible is just really not that relevant to you. I mean, you say it matters, you, you say I'm a Christian, but in reality, if you were honest and you find it hard to say this out loud because it just sounds wrong, but what you feel, and if you were honest, is simply this. That what's in there, you don't have enough confidence in to make it the authority or the guiding principle of your life. And so you largely dismiss the stories and the principles that are in the Bible. And by dismiss them, I simply mean you don't pay attention to them when it comes to making decisions in life. You don't use them to shape your life in any way. You have just taken the Bible and pushed it to the side, and you still come to church and do the whole deal, and it's like, okay, I believe in God, but I'm just not really going to take what's in there 
very seriously. And I get that. I understand that. And part of the problem for all of us is how we got the Bible, how we got our Bibles, is not how we got the Bible. There are two very different ways. This is the very first Bible I got, at least that I can remember, when I was a kid. My parents gave this to me for my 10th birthday. If you open up inside, it says they, you remember old school, you could put from, and they wrote mom, dad, and they wrote my sister's name. I don't think she chipped in on it, but they wrote her name anyway. So this is the very first one I got. Maybe my parents gave me one when I was younger, a little kid's Bible or something, I don't remember. Um, maybe they never talked about Jesus till I was 10. I don't know, I'm kidding. He was a pastor, I'm sure he did. But this is the first one I can remember. And when I got this Bible, they said, hey, you ought to read this Bible, and here's how you read the Bible. And there was a Bible reading plan in here that if you read this much every single day, then you'd read through the Bible in a year. So I started to do that, and I discovered that in here there was an index, and there were these really handy tabs on the end so you could find where the books of the Bible were. And there were, uh, everything was kind of broken out with uh, chapters and sections, and all the sections had titles, and then you, there were maps at the end, and there was a glossary at the end, and there were notes and references all throughout the thing, so there was all this information in the middle of this. Some of you, you got your Bibles this way. Some of you under 30 may have never seen one of these. It's all digital for you, but anyway, this is, this is how we all used to do it, right? And I'm sure most of you still have some of these around here, wrapped in, this one's wrapped in genuine leather. So somebody I once heard say, when we got our Bibles, they were chaptered in verse, mapped and wrapped. They were just all tidy and neat, wrapped in leather right here, and it was just one big thing. And here's how most of us received our Bibles. It was given to us, or it was explained to us this way. This is God's holy word. Everything in it is true. And if you were old enough to think about this and you asked the question, well, how do I know it's all true? The answer was, because it says it's true. Well, wait a minute, just, but that's, that's what we were told. Well, it's all true, and the reason we know it's all true is because it says it's all true. Well, that doesn't seem very um, like compelling evidence, but that's, that was the explanation we were given. And then we were told, you should respect this Bible at all times. You ought to pay attention to it. You ought to believe it's all true. And whatever you do, under no circumstances, never, ever, 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 ever sit a Coke on your Bible because it is holy. Don't put anything on your Bible. Do you ever have a grandma who's like that? It's like nothing goes on the Bible. It stays right there on the table and don't, don't sit anything on it. So this is how it was presented to all of us. Now, for some of you, this was not a problem. And I want to talk to you for just a second because you're going to find this entire series. If I don't explain this, you're going to think this entire series is irrelevant and quite unnecessary. So... There are a handful of you who were given a Bible at some point, and you have spent your entire life going, I have no problem believing this because God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And I get that. However, I would say a couple of things to you. One, I would say to you, if your mentality around this is, well, God said it, and I believe it, and that settles it, and I don't need to know anything else about how we got the Bible, you're actually missing out on some really, really, really rich, powerful facts and historical accounts and truths that God provided for you so you could have even more confidence in what is in this book, and you're missing all that. But the bigger reason I would say you need to pay attention the next four weeks is this. You may be able to say, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. But I would pretty much guarantee you that that is not good enough for your kids if you have kids, or for your grandkids if you have grandkids. And it is not good enough for a lot of our friends who are in our culture today. And we can go, continue to go around and say, well, it says it's true, so I believe it's all true, and that is fine. But we have way better reasons for putting confidence in this book. 
than just saying, well, it says it's true. So I believe it's true. And you need to understand that if for no other reason than for your friends and for your kids and for your grandkids. You need to understand that there is a lot more to it than just that. So what I want to do over the next four weeks, it's going to take me four weeks to do this, and all of this is going to build together. Honestly, this is one big sermon broken up into four parts because nobody wants a four-hour service. So, so you're welcome. I broke it up. But what we're going to do over the next four weeks is I just want to tell you the story of how we got the Bible. And for some of you, this is going to be some information that you have never, ever heard before. But it is game-changing information. And for some of you, it is going to cause you to stop dismissing this book. See, there are two extremes with this. Some of you were told, hey, everything in this is true. You ought to respect it. And so you have spent your entire life respecting this book, but you have never read it. You've never read all of it. You don't know everything that's in here, but if somebody says it all true, you'd say, well, yeah, of course it's true. Well, how do you know? Well, I was told. You didn't read it, and you didn't check it out. Others of you are on the opposite end of the spectrum. You have spent most of your life criticizing this book and dismissing this book. You've never read it either. That's, that's equally intellectually dishonest. So for the next four weeks, I just want us all to get on the same page and understand how we got the Bible. Now, one of the things that's really odd really strange about this book and is different from any other literature or any other book that we have is simply this. When you start at the beginning, you can't start at the beginning. I'll say it this way. The story of the Bible doesn't begin in the beginning of the Bible. Any other book somebody gives you and they say, hey, here you go. Check, you want to check this out? You just start at the beginning and it's sequential. This book is not sequential. The story of the Bible doesn't begin in the beginning of the Bible, the story of the Bible actually begins much, much later with an event that happened that sparked a flurry of activity that led to a lot of people deciding, you know what, we need to document this, what's going on, or led them to say, you know what, I'm going to write letters explaining more about this event and what's happening. And then down the road, actually 350 years after the event, they finally compiled all these documents and they created this, what we call the Bible. But the beginning of the Bible is, doesn't start with in the beginning. Now, we're going to get to in the beginning next week, so don't miss next week. But it doesn't start there. It actually starts far later in the first century. It starts with a guy I want to introduce you today and tell you a little bit about. His name was Luke. Now, here's what's so interesting to me about Luke. Luke was a physician, a medical doctor, but he was not Jewish. He was Greek. How in the world does the story of the Bible begin with a Greek doctor? Isn't that interesting? But that's who it starts with. And Luke was like any good doctor. He was fact-driven. He was detail-oriented. And Luke had a friend that we don't know a whole lot about, but his friend was named Theophilus. What we know about Theophilus is he was probably very wealthy. He was apparently a high-ranking government official. And somehow Luke and Theophilus had become friends. And over the course of time, Theophilus, this is interesting, as a government official... In a government that was opposed to the movement of Christianity, Theophilus had actually heard the story of Jesus. He had heard about all these events that had taken place. And Theophilus had become a believer. He had become a follower of Jesus. And then he begins to talk to Luke and he says, Luke, I'm hearing all of these accounts and all of these stories. And this, people are telling me this eyewitness saw this and this eyewitness said this and this eyewitness noticed this. And, you know, I'm hearing all these things from all these different people. Luke, I'd just like to know with some certainty that what I'm believing is true. I'd like to, you know, I hear this story here and this story here and this story here. But is there a way? Has anybody 
ever taken all these eyewitness accounts, checked them all out, verified them, and compiled them into one account. I'd love to have that account so I'd know with certainty what to believe. That was Theophilus. And Luke says, you know what? I'll do that. And so he writes an account. Now again, here, I want to point this out. I'm going to say this a lot because it's just so hard for us to think this way today. But when Luke writes this account for Theophilus, this was the last thing on his mind. It could not have possibly, uh, Luke couldn't have possibly imagined that 2,000 years later, the document he wrote for Theophilus would be in what we call the Bible. It wasn't on their minds at the time. But what Luke wrote was extraordinarily important. And yet he was writing it just for Theophilus and for Theophilus's friends to give them an orderly account. So I want to begin by reading you how Luke begins this document to his friend Theophilus. Here's what he says. Very first lines of this document. Many have undertaken to draw an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now I just want to pause and point this out. Luke says, I want to begin by letting you know, I'm not the only one who's doing an account. There are actually many people who have sat down to write an account and to do what you've asked me to do, Theophilus. I'm not the only one. Now that brings up the question, why so many accounts? Now we're going to talk about that a, more in well, a little more in just a minute, but here, here's me. To have many accounts of anything in ancient history is unprecedented, unusual, and unparalleled. I'm not just talking about biblical accounts, I'm talking about any account in ancient history. It is very, very rare to have more than one account of any historical event when you begin to look at ancient history. And the reason for that is because it was so expensive to document things, and it was so difficult to document things, that people rarely did it. If they did, they were only going to do one account of it, and then they were finished. And yet Luke says, and we know this because we still have some of them, Luke says, no, no, no. There was an event that took place here in the first century, and there have been many people, many people, who have undertaken to do what I'm doing for you, who have undertaken to write an account of what happened, in spite of the expense and in spite of the difficulty. And then Luke goes on to explain to him the basis for these accounts. He says, just as they were handed down to us, the, the accounts or the understanding of what happened, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So Luke says, Theophilus, I want you to know, all of these different accounts, these many accounts have been written. They've all been written based on or written by eyewitnesses of the events. People who were there, people who saw it, they sat down and they documented it. Again, why in the world would they, they do this? We'll talk about that in a minute. But Luke says to Theophilus, hey, I'm a doctor, so I'm not just going to take their word for it or their word for it and their word for it. I'm detail-oriented. I want to investigate this for myself. I want to make sure that what I'm sending you, Theophilus, is absolutely true and accurate. So I'm going the extra step. I'm taking all of these eyewitness accounts and I'm cross-referencing them. I'm investigating and checking things out. And so what I'm about to send you I know is accurate. He goes on. He says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. I don't want you to miss this. Because I, I've got friends who say this to me. Maybe you've got friends who say this to you, or maybe this is you, and I, I get it. I have friends who say to me, you know what, Matt, what you believe is fine, and I have no problem with it. I actually think it's good. It helps people, and I'm all for whatever helps people. But I just don't think you can know anything with certainty. 
I don't think there's any way you can know with certainty there's a God. I don't think you can know with certainty if Jesus really died and rose. I just don't think you can know anything. It's just faith. It's just you just choose to believe it or you don't, but there's no evidence. And if Luke were here, here's what I want you to get. If Luke were here, he would look at you and he would say, I disagree 100%. I believe you can know with certainty. This is what he said to Theophilus. I believe you can know Theophilus with certainty, with confidence, that what I'm telling you in this account is actually true. Now, that brings up a question I want us to discuss for just a few minutes. It's simply this. Why did Luke want to write an account of Jesus' life for Theophilus? Why did he want, what drove him, what motivated him? Because again, it was expensive, it was difficult, it wasn't like it is today, you couldn't pop up your Mac or your laptop, you know, and just type something out. No, 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 it was hard. You were doing it all by hand. You were having to buy all this parchment and all this ink. What would motivate Luke to do this? Why did he want to write an account? Well, near the end of his account, Luke tells Theophilus why this was so important for him to do. He talks about the fact that Jesus died on a Roman cross. And when he died, there were no followers left. When he died, there were no believers. When he died, there were no people going, I still think Jesus is who he said he was. I still think he was a great, because Jesus, he didn't never claim to be a great teacher. Jesus claimed to be God in human flesh. And these people, some of them had believed that. That's why they had followed him. But God doesn't get crucified on a Roman cross. And so at the end, Luke in essence tells us, no, no, no. Once Jesus died, it was game over for everybody. Everybody fled for the most part. Everybody left. As far as we were concerned, Luke would say, from, from the perspective of these first followers, Jesus had been crushed between the power of the Roman Empire on one side and the power of the Jewish temple on the other. Two powers that had to work together out of necessity, but they were really at odds with each other, and yet they found this common ground. We are going to crush this man Jesus because of his message and because of what he claims to be. And when Jesus died... It appeared those two powers had won, and everybody, for the most part, abandoned him. At his death, there were only a few women and a couple of men still standing. Those two men, interestingly enough, Luke tells us at the end of his account, were named Joseph, and he was from the city of Arimathea. And then there was a second man by the name of Nicodemus. Now, again, we miss this when we read it today. But when Luke wrote this account... Everybody in Jerusalem, at least, and probably throughout Israel, knew the names Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. These were very famous men because these men were part of the most powerful religious group in Jerusalem. These men were actually part of this group of power at the Jewish temple that was responsible partly for crushing the life of Jesus. And yet they had secretly been followers of Jesus. So as Luke is writing this, I just want you to keep this in mind. He is talking about what Joseph and Nicodemus are doing. And he's not talking about two anonymous men that nobody knew who they were and you couldn't find them. They were mysterious and well, we can't go ask them now if that's what really happened. No, everybody knew who these guys were. They're still right there in Jerusalem. So if you didn't believe what Luke wrote, all you had to do was go ask Joseph and Nicodemus. I have no doubt that Luke probably had conversations with Joseph and Nicodemus and that's where he got his account. And so near the end, here's what Luke tells us happened. Here's why Luke says, I wanted to write this account. He says, then he, and he's talking about Joseph of Arimathea, then he took down, took it down, the body of Jesus. He wrapped it in a linen cloth and he placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. 
So once Jesus died on a Roman cross, Luke says Joseph and Nicodemus together ended up doing what you do with any dead body. You bury it. That was it. Just put it in a tomb. And as the Jewish custom was, they were going to leave it in this tomb until the body decayed, and then they would gather up all the bones, and they would put it in a little box that the Jews called the, an ossuary, and that's where Jesus' remains would stay. And nobody expected anything else to happen. And nobody was going to continue to uh, you know, spread the teachings of Jesus or to, or to con- try to convince people that he was God's son, because again, God doesn't die on a Roman cross. Luke continues, the women, I told you there were a few women who were around, the women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph as he took Jesus' body along with Nicodemus to the tomb. And they saw the tomb, and they saw how his body was laid in it. And then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes. Why? Because they saw how Jesus' body was put in the tomb by Joseph and Nicodemus. And the women immediately realized Those two turkeys have no idea how to do it right. So we got to go home because it's the Sabbath and nobody can handle this on the Sabbath. But as soon as Sunday morning comes, we're going to have all our spices and perfumes ready and we're going to go back to that tomb and we're going to properly prepare Jesus' body to be there in the tomb. Joe and Nick botched the job. I appreciate them doing it. We're glad they stuck with him, but they clearly didn't know how to do that. So that's what they did. That's what they did. And this was expected to be game over. This was expected to be the end of everything. And please don't miss this. At this moment, there were no Christians. There were no Jesus followers. There was no church. There was no movement. There was no sunrise celebration service planned. Nobody was out there Sunday morning going, 10, 9, 8, we can't wait. There was nothing. Everybody assumed it's over. We have done with Jesus' body what you do with dead bodies. We're all disappointed. We're all crushed. We're all heartbroken because he was not who he said he was. And we lost our friend. So we're going to put him in a tomb. We're going to try to pay our respects as best we can. And then we're going to move on with all of our disappointment and heartbreak and pain through the rest of our lives. And yet, here we are 2,000 years later with multiple accounts of Jesus' life. Why? I'm telling you, if the story ended right here, there would be no B-I-B-L-E. Nobody was thinking about this. There would be no need for this because none of these documents that are at least in our New Testament today, none of them would have been written. There was no point in writing about a man who claimed to be somebody he wasn't, was killed on a Roman cross, And his bones are in an ossuary box somewhere. So why would Luke want to write about this to Theophilus? Simple. Luke documented the life of Jesus because the story of Jesus didn't end on a Roman cross. This is the beginning of how we got the Bible. If you want to know how did we end up with this book, you go all the way back to that early Sunday morning of the resurrection. That is the event that was a catalyst for a flurry of activity over the next few decades that led to people writing these accounts and people writing documents and letters explaining the resurrection that eventually led 350 years later to people saying, oh, we should gather all of those up, it's so important, and we should all put them together for safety. And we have what we now call the Bible. But it doesn't start in the beginning. It starts with this singular event called the resurrection. And so... Luke, for Theophilus, for his friend, wrote 
what we now call the Gospel of Luke. Luke didn't name it that. Luke didn't have any grand ideas of this is going to one day be a gospel. Like they're, going to, they're going to treat this with such reverence and it's going to be in the best-selling you know, book of all time? No. He's just writing a document to his friend. He wasn't calling it. Nobody called it the Gospel of Luke. But he documented the life of Jesus. And there was only one reason, because something had happened, the resurrection that caused him to do it. And then Luke didn't end. He wrote another document that we named Acts. And what Luke did is for about the next 30 years, and we're going to talk more about this in week four. For about the next 30 years, Luke traveled around with Paul. And Luke documented all of the activity of the early followers of Christians for 30 years after the resurrection. We call it Acts. But do you remember what I said at the beginning? Do you remember what Luke wrote in the very first line of his document? He said, my account's not the only account. He said, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Many have. And many did. And we still have some of them today. For example, Peter, a guy named Peter. Do you remember, do you remember Peter's story? If you grew up in church, you know this. A lot of people are familiar with Peter. Peter, the guy who claimed, Jesus, I'm going with you all the way, Jesus. Ever, you know, They may come kill you, or I'm going to die with you, I'm not abandoning you. And then denies Jesus three times. That Peter, he sits down over the next few years with a young man by the name of Mark. And Peter dictates to Mark an account of Jesus' life based on everything he had seen. And Peter didn't leave anything out. As a matter of fact, if you read the account that Mark uh, recorded that Peter dictated to him, it is just what you would expect a guy like Peter to do. It is fast-paced, it is action-oriented, it is straight to the point, it is here's what happened and then here's what happened and then here's what happened. But Peter didn't leave any of the ugly stuff out. Peter put all the stuff in, including the stuff he did. Imagine that. Peter put all the stuff in, including... I betrayed my own Savior. I got it wrong. I abandoned him. I denied him. Peter put it all in there. And so we have this account that was written by Mark, dictated by Peter, that also gives us a perspective on the life of Jesus. And Mark is not some mysterious figure. Mark was a friend of Luke's. Mark traveled around with the Apostle Paul for a little while. Like, we know who Mark is. He was a friend of Peter's, and he wrote all of this down. Not only that, we have another account that was written by a guy named Matthew, who was an eyewitness, who was one of Jesus' original 12, who was with Jesus and saw all of this. Now, what's interesting about Matthew's account, and maybe you didn't understand, the, you may have never had the context of it explained to you, Matthew actually wrote his account for Jewish people. He didn't write it with non-Jewish people in mind. So when you read Matthew's account, it reads a little different than some of the others because he was writing it to a different audience. He probably wrote it originally in Hebrew, and then it got translated into Greek, and that's how it got to non-Jewish people. But Matthew's whole point was, I have all of these Jewish people who are asking me about this, so I've got to sit down, I've got to write an account. And what I'm going to do for these Jewish people is I'm going to connect the dots between all the things in our Jewish scriptures, and we're going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks, what we call the Old Testament, all the things in our Jewish scriptures that pointed to Jesus. I just want to connect the dots for them between what we knew was in our scripture and what Jesus did. I want to help them to see he was who he claimed to be. He was the Messiah we had been waiting on. So that was the whole point of Matthew's account. And then we have another account written by another one, Jesus' original 12, named John. Now, why would all of these guys write these accounts? Well, because as time went on, they continued to face persecution. They began to watch all of their friends be killed or martyred 
for their faith. And they realize we better get these accounts down before we die or else the story might die with us. And John was one of those. But here's what fascinates me about John. John was the only one out of the original 12 who didn't die a martyr's death, best we can tell. But he was persecuted all the way to the bitter end of his life. He lived to be an old man. And near the very end of his life, John's account is the last account of the four that we still have, the last account that was written of Jesus' life. Now think about this. If, if John were here today, one of the questions we would ask him is, why in the world, as expensive as it was, as difficult as it was, why in the world, John, at the end of your life, when you knew there were other accounts, you would still sit down, you would still try to write an account of Jesus' life. Why would you do that? And John would look back at us and he would say, well, I never knew you were going to read it. I was writing it for my friends. I was writing it for the people that I interacted with, but... I told you in the back of my account why I wrote it. Here's what John said near the very end of his account. He said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. He's not just talking about the 12. He's talking about all the people who followed Jesus. And he says, which are not recorded in this book. Now, when John says book, again, you have to remember, we read that and think he's talking about the Bible. He is not talking about the B-I-B-L-E because John had no idea this was going to exist. We're... We're a long time, we're a couple centuries away from this existing in this form. John's just saying, hey, in my account, he's calling it a book because that was in that time, it was long enough, it would be considered a book. He says, in this book or this account that I've just written, I've told you about a lot of the things that I saw, but I, I couldn't tell you everything. Like, there's just more than I could write. But he said, I've written what I've written. Listen, look at this. These, the things that are written, I've written what I've written. For reason. Just pause real quick. John, why would you write things? You're an old man. Think about this. John is an old man who has suffered so much persecution. He's been exiled at one point to an island just because they can't, the Roman Empire can't shut him up. They can't stop him from telling what he saw, not what Jesus taught. Nobody went around spreading what Jesus taught, they went around spreading what they had seen and heard and experienced. They couldn't shut John up, so they put him on an island where nobody could get to him, where he, you know, he could talk to himself. John, you've been through so much persecution. John, you've seen so much evil and suffering. We have no idea. We can't fathom the amount of evil and suffering John saw. Every one of his closest friends have been killed because they won't recant what they've seen and heard. They won't recant that they saw Jesus die and then saw him alive. John, in spite of all that suffering and evil, are you telling me that your faith is still intact. I mean, good grief for a lot of us who follow Jesus. All it takes is a little illness and we begin to question God. All it takes is a little, you know, issue at work and we start wondering, God, where are you? There are a lot of us who walk away from our faith for a lot less than that. John never walked away from his faith in spite of suffering things none of us will ever suffer. John, you're telling me after all these years your faith is still intact to the point that you're going to go to the difficulty as an old man to write this down. John says, yeah, and I'll tell you why. These are written that you may believe. Now, he didn't know we were going to be reading it one day. The you he's talking about are his friends and his colleagues and the people that he had met over the course of his life. But it extends to us because we read his account. John says, I'll tell you why I went to all this trouble. So you would believe or you would trust. 
so that you would put your confidence in. Now, for some of you, this is your hang-up. For some of you, this is the point you say, okay, Matt, I'm, this is my deal. I just don't believe it anymore. I just don't believe it anymore. And, okay, I'm, I'm not walked away entirely, and I still show up to church. And, you know, I'm here with the family, or I'm here with friends, or I'm here because somebody wants me to be. But I just don't believe it anymore. And here's the question I would ask you. What is the it that you don't believe anymore? You need to identify that. Don't just say, I just don't believe it anymore. You need to be very specific about what it you don't believe anymore. Because John, and you're about to see this, John would look at you if he were here today and he would say, there is only one it that matters. I don't want to hear about all the other stuff. Okay, we can debate that later. There is only one it that matters. There's only one it that you have to believe. And he wrote it down at the end of this document. He said, these are written that you may believe. Here's your it. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John says, there's only one it you need to believe. And that is Jesus is who he, that you believe Jesus is who he said he was. And that he did what he said he would do. That Jesus was God in human flesh. And he died and rose again to pay the penalty for your sins. So you could have life. You could experience forgiveness. You could experience grace. And you could be in a relationship with your heavenly father, reconciled to him once again. John says, this is the only it that matters. Now again, remember, there was no B-I-B-L-E. All of this didn't exist yet. And John didn't know this was going to exist yet. But this is what fascinates me. John basically is saying to the people who read his account, everything that is essential to you following Jesus, everything that is essential to you experiencing forgiveness and being a part of your heavenly Father's family, it's all right here in my account. In other words, if John's account is all you have, John's account is all you need. This is what John was saying, because he didn't know all the rest of this would exist. So he's saying everything you would need to know, this is why I wrote down my account, because I put all the essentials right here. And if my account is all you ever uh, read, it's all you'll ever need. And so, in the first century, there was no this the way we know this. But, there were hundreds and thousands and eventually tens of thousands of Christians who followed Jesus and believed exactly what John put in his account. And there were copies, first a few, of Matthew's account and Luke's account. And Mark's account dictated to him by Peter. And John's account. And then, and then, those copies began to be copied and spread and copied and spread and copied and spread. And when followers of Jesus got their hands on these documents, they treasured them. They treasured them. Here's how they viewed these documents. They believed they were valuable and reliable they believed they were sacred and inspired, and they believed they were Scripture. Now, again, we, we can't fathom how important this is and how mind-blowing this was. But the Jewish followers of Jesus took these accounts and put them on the same level as their Jewish Scriptures. It was phenomenal. And they treasured them with their entire lives. Now, the reason we know that is simply because of this. The Roman Empire was extremely suspicious of Christians. Extremely suspicious. But they were not suspicious of what Christians believed. They were suspicious of Christians because of what Christians did not believe. You see, the thing that Christians did not believe is that there were multiple gods, and all the Romans believed that. 
And because Christians believed Jesus was Lord but refused to say Caesar was Lord, that was a problem. And the Romans were also extremely superstitious. They were superstitious in the sense that anytime something happened that was bad in the Roman Empire, they assumed it was because they had angered their gods. Now, the Christians had a bullseye on their back because if something bad happened, clearly we must have angered the gods. Well, what happened that angered the gods? Well, it was all these Christians running around saying, our gods don't exist. And so that's why persecution from the Romans arose against all of these Christians and all of these followers of Jesus. It was for that reason. And it reached its climax in 303 with Emperor Diocletian, who said Christians can no longer have any gathering places. It's illegal to assemble. They took all the bishops and they said, you know what? Listen, you have to recant what you believe or else we're going to kill you. And then all of these documents, all of this Christian literature, they said it's illegal. So you got to burn it all. And if we find you with some of these documents and you haven't burned them, then what we're going to do is this. We are going... We are going to kill your family, and then we're going to kill you. We're going to kill your family, and then we're going to kill you. So, these Christians gave their lives. They gave their lives to protect these documents. Now, here's what I want to say, and then we're going to wrap up. My challenge to you would simply be this. Would you read or read again one of these documents that these early followers of Jesus risked their lives to protect and pass on to you? Pick John, pick Luke, pick Mark, pick Matthew, doesn't matter. Would you just take the next month and read one? But read it from a different perspective. Read it from the perspective that we have just talked about. Because there is way more to the story than you may realize. One final thing and I'll wrap up. Some of you may be sitting there thinking, okay, you're talking about the Romans persecuted the Christians over this because they only believed in one God. Well, the Jews only believed in one God. They didn't get persecuted like that. It's a great question. And there was a reason for that, and I'll answer it next week. As we go back to where this book says, in the beginning. Until then, would you just read it? Would you just explore it? Maybe with a different perspective, with the perspective of these are documents that people gave their lives to protect. Why? Not because of some teachings, but because of something that happened. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Here we are 2,000 years later, and you have preserved these documents and these texts. Thank you so much that we can hold these and we can read these. Thank you for the, the people that you place these documents in their hands and they protected them with their lives. Would you help us as we begin to read through these, to read them with a fresh perspective and with a new understanding of how we got them and the value of them. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.